you as a church family and your your respect for the whole structure of church and church life, including what we believe is a very sacred moment that God gives us each and every week, and that is to allow the scriptures to be read, to be taught, to be preached, to be able to be shared, to be, in, to be able to be grasped, hopefully to be expounded upon. You know, it's a sacred thing that God has given to us pastors, a privileged opportunity to be able to preach the gospel, to teach the word, to equip the, cha- the saints of God, to know the virtue of, wa- of, of what we hold here, the scriptures. You know, the scriptures we were going over in our new membership class, the 16 fundamental truths of the assemblies of God. And the first fundamental truth is, is that the scriptures are inspired. That is our belief that the scriptures are the inspired word of God. Come on, somebody. Amen. Now, I've shared with, and I've, I've done this many times, and I have, I've shared it with you publicly. I shared it privately. How I've learned to appreciate the value of Moses on Mount Sinai and God coming down in the sight of the entire nation to speak the Ten Commandments because Moses would carry down from the mountain the law, the Ten Commandments that had been written by the finger of God on the tablet of stone. But any supposed prophet could go to a solitary or a lonely place and claim to meet God, claim to have the authoritative voice of God, to claim to have the word of God. But on that day, Two million men and women saw the glory of God descend on a cloud with fire and lightnings and thunderings, and they heard the audible voice of God that would then later be captured on the tablet of stone that was written by the finger of God, thus the beginning of Scripture, script, scripted, scripted on stone, later on paper, now it's scripted on our heart. Come on, somebody. Amen. And... Thank God for his word today. And so when the New Testament canon would be coming forth and the apostolic fathers, having heard from God, been with Jesus, believing that Jesus was the expression of the word of God. I guess I'm retracing a little bit of my Sunday school class because in Sunday school class, in Hebrews 1, I mentioned it says, God at sundry, King James English, God at sundry times and divers manners, spaken to us in times past by the fathers, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, who he made the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. And so in times past, God spoke by the prophets. He spoke again through the scribes and the teachers of the law. But in these last days, he's come and he's spoken to us through his son. His son speaks in harmony with the scriptures because he's the extension of the scriptures. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word was became flesh and dwelt among us. Come on, somebody. We beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Amen. So when we hear his teaching and hear the word of God, we hear it and it's in harmony. It's not divided. It's not in contention with the other. It's always unifying and and strengthening one aspect of it. One of my privileged responsibilities as a pastor is to expound it to you, to teach it, to be somebody who studies himself, And then when we have public settings, Paul wrote to Timothy 
And he said, till I come, give attention to reading. And by reading, he meant the public reading of Scripture. Now, that generation wasn't privileged like we are in the sense that how many of you have your own personal copy of the Word of God? Multiple copies of the Word of God. You have access to the Word right here on your iPhone or your iPad or whatever. But that generation did not. There may have just been one copy of a letter or a manuscript or a, a passage of Scripture that someone had carefully preserved and handed down. And the pastor, Timothy, would have an opportunity when the church came together to then read it and expound it. Well, even though we are privileged that everyone has their own personal copy or access to the Word of God, the principle and the practice of the public reading and expounding of Scripture has not changed. There's something of merit and value for you to hear the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. I don't know what it is. Come on, it's like a good restaurant. Come on, somebody. It's a place of anticipation that you've arrived at where you know preparation has been made in advance and you just simply get to receive of that preparation. Come on. That's what this moment can be. It will nourish your soul. It will strengthen you. It'll help you understand the nature of God and how he works and relates. And I'll tell you, I, I find, you know, I know that I'm not the most articulate person or the most educated person, but if I ever start to get down on myself, I remind myself that God used a rooster to speak to, peace, to Peter, and he used, come on somebody, he used a, a King James English and asked to speak to Balaam. And so God can speak through me this morning. He can. So I want your heart prepared. God's given me a good word for you today. We're going to stand in the honor of reading of Scripture, even though we're not going to start the process of reading Scripture, but we do so out of tradition. Come on. It's something that we merit and we value because we thank God for His Word, for the reading of His Word. Father in heaven, we are so thankful and grateful for your word today. God, I can already tell today that you've put a very sacred and special anointing upon what's to be said. And God, but from my place of prayer right now, I, I believe that the unction's going to be present. The ability to communicate the word is already present, Father. But my prayer now is that the people will not be distracted that they'll, their minds will be ready to receive the Word of God so that good seed will fall on good ground. Come on, somebody, and bring forth good fruit, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. We're just, I'm not going to go back and retrace the steps, but I, I believe that you responded very well last week to the content of the, of the sermon, and that was concerning... If you remember, is there a spirit behind it? It was a question that I posed to you based upon a passage of Scripture in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul spoke and drove a devil out of a young girl who was speaking the truth. Isn't that coming? She was speaking the truth, but she was speaking the truth through the inspiration of an evil spirit in order to create deception for a later date and time because that's how the enemy will work. He will deceive you through taking things that are truthful and then eventually twisting and distorting the truth. And you as a believer, when you're in circumstances that you are misunderstanding or not sure of, then it is a right prayer to pray and say, God, give me discernment. Is there a spirit behind this thing? Do y'all remember that? And we kind of journeyed through and we arrived at the place that if there is a spirit, you've got to deal with that spirit. You can't pray and ask God to deal with that spirit. 
That, that's, a, that's your theology is misplaced. If you think that God has already dealt with spirits, he defeated them on the cross through the virtue of Jesus Christ's death, then burial and resurrection. And all authority and power has been committed unto Christ and he's given you his name, his authority. Come on, as my father has sent me, even so I send you, said Jesus. You've been given power that God's not coming down to deal with your problem. You're going to have to deal with it through the unction and the anointing. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? The unction and the anointing that's available through God, through Christ Jesus and the authority of his word. Amen? Amen. So today, let's go a little bit further. Before we get into the text that we're going to read, we're going to read from Jude and in a second passage in 2 Corinthians. I want to establish something that I have pondered in my own personal meditations to lay the groundwork before we unfold the text i want you to consider with me god's grace and his faithfulness to us on three different levels okay first of all personally how you relate how you first received of the merit of god's grace that once you believed and you received changes were worked in you personally come on salvation is a personal experience right and when you received of that grace there was an inward to outward transformation come on i changed inwardly instantly but i'm changing outwardly progressively day by day i'm dying to myself and i'm living unto god i'm changed from glory to glory into the image of jesus day by day i'm learning of god's love his grace and his blessing on our lives we're learning of these things correct we're learning of what god is you know benefits Psalm 103, we know a lot about our benefits that belong to us as American citizens, but what about the benefits available to us as being a citizen of God's eternal kingdom? Come on. Amen? And so we're learning of these things, exercising, receiving these things in our own heart and life that I'll allude to more in a few moments. The virtue of God's grace also, though, number two, once believed and received, should lead to change and transformation in my personal family. Where there's been erratic behavior, there ought to be the process of establishing of some stability, some strength, learning how to walk in the favor of God. And not only my personal family, but I also believe my church family. I think those two, I'm going to overlap those together, put those in the same context. Family, church family. That as I walk and learn and grow in God's grace and His goodness, I discover that there's order and there's structure and there's accountability and that favor and blessing flows from that order, that structure, and that accountability. Come on now, church family. And, and so as I'm functioning there, I then begin to see a transformation take place, not just in my heart, but come on, husbands then learn how to love their wives. Wives learn how to honor their husbands. Children learn how to obey their parents. Come on. The process of life, regeneration in the home and family and certainly in the church family. I learned how to interrelate with God's people, how not to walk in strife and create seditions and how to, even though I might disagree with you, but still have harmony and be unified. Come on, that's, that's as I grow in the virtue of God's grace, it transforms me within my family and the church family. And number three, and the reason we, these are very important is because the truth that's going to come forth from the Word of God today, it is applicable on all three levels. And everybody in here is a little bit different about what's most prominent in your life right now. 
And so I can't just speak to one. I have to kind of universally apply it so that you can then apply it personally and individually to you and your life and your situation. But the virtue of God's grace, once believed and received, should lead to some measure of change, transformation in my community. Because we just sung a song a moment ago about to be salt and light. And the church has always been intended by God to be salt and light. Let me go a little bit further. Meaning that I now have a purpose in my life. That is to both lead people to Christ, but also to be a light to the truth. Listen to a statement that I've written. I'll probably refer to it more than one occasion today in the message. Even if you and I cannot fully convert the community or change the culture entirely, we are called to influence it. Did y'all hear what I'm saying? It's that so even if through the work of the church, we don't necessarily see a mass revival where every person in our communities across the nation are converted, they still need to feel the influence of the church in their lives because to be some measure of restraining force from the sin nature of men that still abide in darkness. So three levels, personal, family church, and church family, and then also community. Tuck that in your spirit because as we start to unfold this scripture, you're going to have to make that right application. This, this, this doctrine applies to all three or relates to all three. We're going to Jude, and Jude is simply one chapter. Many believe Jude to be the half-brother of the Lord Jesus himself, meaning the offspring of Joseph and Mary following Jesus' virgin birth and in his letter and i have referenced from this many times pastors have for the last two millennium but and it's going to be even until jesus comes oddly enough this is the very first passage of scripture that i referred to when i preached what was labeled the tryout sermon at uh, at uh, maranatha assembly in shirley and oddly enough i chose a portion of it when i came to heber springs it's this third verse that speaks to me the third and the fourth verse to begin the context for just a moment jude says beloved what a precious endearing you know uh, uh way to start the letter these, these are people he cares for they're beloved he must have personal fellowship and relationship with them he knows that they're truly in the faith uh, that they are called of god called of the our preachers also preach from an unction. He's a preacher. He's writing from the true inspiration. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching from what I believe is unction. As I look at inspiration, I gain in, uh, some measure of unction to share with you here today. And so Jude is simply saying, when I determined I was going to write to you, he said, I wanted to write to you about the common salvation. Now, common salvation in this reference here is that it's a salvation that's came to all, Jesus died for all, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, come on, black or white, male or female, it's common salvation. All had sinned and come short of the glory of God, but, but, but thank God for the merit and the wonders of God's eternal grace and goodness, right, that now we have access to the Father through Christ, it's a common salvation. He said, I wanted to write to you. You know, I've come to this pulpit many times and I wanted to preach something else. I wanted to write something that wasn't as invoking. I wanted to write some, uh, preach something that wasn't as controversial. But what Jude said is, when he got to the third verse, here he says, I wanted to write to you about the common salvation, but I found it needful. Other translation says, I found it necessary. 
the situation that you are in right now moved me to write to you something entirely different. So his pen took a different direction because of necessity. He uses the word here in the King James, write and exhort. To write unto you and to exhort. When anytime you see the word exhort, it's a strong word in the Greek. It means it's also translated beseech. We don't use the word very often. I beseech you. But when it's an imploring, it's an imploring with passion. It's a plea that's being made. I'm also I'm warning you and I'm urging you. This is more than just me writing a quick letter that you're going to read. I'm saying something to you that if you don't act, somebody else is going to act in your stead. And take from you some things that belong rightfully to you. Are y'all hearing the context here for just a moment? He said, so I'm, I'm, I'm exhorting you to do what? Notice this as we read it down. That you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. So put this in its context. He's saying, I'm going to write to you. I wanted to write to you about common salvation. But the situation has become great. Things have changed. Something has shifted. I can't write to you what I want to write to you because the necessity now demands that I write and I implore you, young or old, rich or poor, been in the church 20 years, or you just got saved last week, you better become acutely aware of what's going on around you. That's what he's saying, that you need to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the brethren. Now, let's, let's dissect this for just a moment. The word faith here simply means the conviction of truth. Let's put it in its right context. The faith that's being referred to is a belief respecting man's relationship to God and to divine things. Because every man has the capacity to have faith. But it doesn't mean that he's in the faith. That he's exercising true faith. Come on, somebody. God just dealt to every man the measure of faith. The ability to possess faith. So when he uses the term faith here, he's putting it in the context that, from which he is writing truth that relates to Scripture. He's a Jew. He's writing in the context that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. The apostles have come and they've continued the teachings of Jesus. And he's saying, so he's relating to Scripture. He's relating to God, to Christ, and salvation. Holy things. It's a biblical context of belief. Because when I got saved, I don't know about you, but everything changed in my life in the sense of, in this sense right here, that I became aware I had a God consciousness now. I became aware and then my whole worldview began to change and be conformed to my understanding of my word view. As I grew in my word view, then I altered my worldview. Come on now. And that's important for all of us today in the times in which we live. And so Judas writing here, he said it's about a common faith and you need to continue for it. Now that word contend means strive. It means to labor or even to struggle for. Listen, literally Strong's Concordance says it means to compete for a prize. So you know like two boxers that are contending for a belt. Or figuratively it means to contend with an adversary like David, which this was not figurative in this sense. It actually happened but for you and I we refer to it figuratively and that is that we contend with an adversary like David and Goliath. So that's what the apostle here is writing concerning he's saying there is a genuine authentic faith it was given to the church it was a belief system that was held by the people of God but you better get ready to roll your sleeves back and get your spiritual dukes up because the battle is on because some people are trying to take let's go a little bit further the fourth verse he, he expounds it right here he said there are certain men 
that have, been, that have crept in unawares or secretly who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Notice this. These are ungodly men. Ungodly men that have turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And they denied, and in doing so, they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we want for the, now again, remember this. We're going to talk about this at three levels. Personally, and your family level, church level, and then also in the community. This salvation, this gospel, this truth has been delivered to you. But someone or something is always attempting to take it from you to take from you the promises of life in Christ Jesus, the transforming power of the work of grace in your life, the ability of the Word of God to change you from the inside out, change your family, change your home, change your life, change the way that you live, change your children and your children. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Going from a life of despair and decadence to a life of holiness and righteousness, going to, from a life of dysfunction and brokenness, of alcoholism to alcoholism, from addiction to addiction, to all of a sudden now a change has worked in you and a change is going to be worked through you and your children and your children are y'all hearing me are going to receive of the benefit of that change you're going to put a baton in their hand when you pass into eternity you will have run your race but now they will have run their race you will have fought your fight but now they're ready to fight their fight come on somebody because you ran your race you fought your fight with excellence come on now and so he's saying I'm writing to you and saying you better get ready because when you're in the kingdom you can and rest assured that there's an enemy to the grace of God in your life and the enemy wants to take from you everything Jesus died on the cross to give you. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a little bit at times a passive person on some things. I'm quiet and unassuming in some areas. But if I get pushed in the wrong area, come on, somebody. If I get pushed in the wrong thing, then I, there's a passion that awakens inside of me, a zeal, a zealot type mentality that says, you know what? There's too much value and stake for me to set back passive at this moment in time. So Jude is saying, look, here's how Jude would later describe these men in this very passage of, uh, right here. We won't for the sake of time. They may post some. He said they're ungodly men. He said they're clouds without water. They are trees without fruit. They are waves of the sea, raging. That means they're foaming at the mouth, almost frolicking at the mouth, wandering stars. He said, they're mockers, they're sensual, and they have not the spirit. There's two types of people in the earth. You either have been born again by the spirit of God, or you don't have the spirit of God. Doesn't matter whether or not you attend a church, whether or not you got a cross around your neck. The really key to who you really are is, are you born again? The distinction, light and darkness, children of God, children of darkness. So here he says, they are children without the spirit. They are men, they're sensual, they have not the spirit. Back to the fourth verse. Here it says part of what they're doing is turning, look at this, and I know you've seen this in our culture today, they're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. The, the word lasciviousness, we don't use it often in our culture today, but it means lewdness. The Amplified Bible reads this way in this passage. It says, he, the grace of God is being distorted into decadence and immoral freedom. Viewing it as an opportunity to do whatever they want. And so in doing so, they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me tell you, church family, if you're functioning in a doctrine today that still allows immoral behavior in your life and you're not dealing with it, you've been deceived by the same spirit that is functioning in these ungodly men. 
that have come in and are still alive in the church. And I, when I think about this in, uh, in the context of who we are as our belief system, the three different levels, I think of, again, this threefold application. I think about how God's done things in me personally. He's deposited them into me. I think about what he's done for me and for my family and for our church family. He's deposited them in us. And then we ought to be influencing the culture around us. God's given it to us. The church holds the answers to the needs of our community and our government. Come on, the church does. And so when I think about it, I almost think about it like a football term for just a moment. Think about the running back for a moment. I know many of you have watched, you know, NFL football, college football, high school. The running back receives the ball from the quarterback. And then he makes his way through the line of scrimmage where he's met by a defensive tackle. And he tries to shake off the defensive tackle only to be met by a linebacker. Only to then have a cornerback come up and grab him by the leg. And there's four or five, but he's trying to go this way. They're trying to stop him from going any further. And all the while that he's straining forward, here comes the safety running up. They're trying to tackle the running back, but the safety doesn't try to tackle. The ball is what he wants. And he begins to try to strip. Y'all have seen that many times. He's not even concerned with tackling him because he can let him continue to run if he don't have the prize. The prize is the ball. The prize is our faith. The faith of God that he's put and committed unto us, we want to advance it. But the enemy has come through philosophy and vain deceit and through traditions and through erroneous doctrines uh, that have crept into the church that are trying to take from us the true faith of God. And we got to lock ourselves down and say, devil, you can't have it. This belongs to God. It's been delivered once and for all. My God, I feel like preaching in here today. It's been delivered once and for all to the kingdom of God. And even a little bit further, in order to contend effectively, I love this in the 20th verse. If you're going to contend, if you're going to strive, if you're going to struggle, and we'll talk about that in just a moment of time, effectively, you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to be spiritually maturing and growing, edified, built up. Look at what he said here in the 20th verse. But you, beloved, you got to build yourself up, praying in the Holy Ghost. King James English. you got to pray in the Spirit. Prayer builds us up spiritually, emotionally. It prepares us to face the challenges of the day, the onslaught of the adversary that's trying to steal from you personally, from your family, or from the church, or from the community. The enemy does, and you got to be prepared. Maybe one of the reasons why that we are not as strong as we used to as a church in America is because we're anemic individually. We're not strong. We, we're not building ourselves in our prayer chambers. Come on, somebody. We're not reading and meditating upon the Word of God. We're locked into media, to Facebook, to television, to ESPN, all the things that have become stumbling blocks to every one of us in this room. But I'm telling you, church family, we're living in an hour when the Spirit of God is crying, uh, crying out and urging us, come on, to build ourselves up because the battle is great. The battle's not behind us. The battle is present, and the battle is yet in front of us. So keep yourselves in the love of God. Look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this before we're going to talk about a, a little bit further in just a moment. I love the means of evangelism and influence. Remember that the church may not always convert the culture, but we attempt to convert the culture. But even if we don't convert it, we are attempting to influence it. To restrain its evil. I'll highlight that more in a moment. In verse 22 and 23, here's how he said the church needs to function. 
In one area, you function in evangelism and through compassion. The church must be compassionate. That's a part of outreach. It's a part of making a difference in the lives of people. Some people respond to compassion. But he said, and others, 23rd verse, and others, people need to be reminded of the judgment of God. Now, some people, you can do benevolent acts to them, and immediately their heart is warm to the grace and the goodness of God. To others, it don't matter how many times you come over and mow their yard. It doesn't matter because their heart's hardened against God. They don't care. It's only when they are forced to look, and we can't force them through coercion, but through hopefully by the Spirit to allow them to know there is coming a day of the judgment of God. The judgment of God may be deferred, but that day will arrive. You know, if we don't accept God's redemptive work on the cross, that he died and absorbed the blood of God's judgment on the cross, then there will come a day when you trod under the foot the blood of the Son of God and you consider the covenant that you were sanctified by an unholy thing. And so it's a part of the church. So it's not one without the other. It's got to be both. We're the general, for whatever reason, in days gone by, the church was caught up in the latter one such as sermons that I highlighted uh, two sermons or two, uh, two Sundays ago, uh, you know, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the famous message that was preached to help launch the, uh, the Great Awakening. And so there was such an emphasis on the wrath of God and hellfire that for whatever reason, we swung the, pun, the pendulum to the other side and now we just preach the compassion and the love of God. And I'm telling you, it ought not be one without the other. It ought to be both. We ought to be sharing the love and the grace and the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God through benevolent acts upon people, but we also need to lift our voices up and speak the truth. God is a judge. He's always been the judge. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and there will come a day he's going to consummate all things in Christ Jesus. Every man, woman, boy, and girl, every born of Adam and Eve is going to stand before God and give account before God on the day of judgment. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear so it's not one without the other so god forbid that in our time today in the church we made it one without the other and it needs to be it needs to be both to me that's the faith that was delivered to the saints to help in influencing the culture amen now again let's say this to maintain the attack the effects of your faith you cannot be passive. Mm, let me just think on that. I want you to think. I've been thinking on it. You cannot be passive. Come on now. Someone or something, a person or a belief system, a group of dissenters, philosophers, even governments, other religions. Let me tell you, you remain silent and there will be a Muslim somewhere that will have you bowing in a, in a mosque somewhere. Are you here? You remain silent, and this freedom in the American government will one day be nothing more than tyranny. You remain silent, and a corrupt system of lewdness will continue to permeate our culture. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? It will only become worse and worse if you remain silent. That's at the corporate, that's at the, the, the government or the, the, the community level, but the same thing in your family. The devil it was a, is a thief, he will come to steal, kill, and to destroy. He'll try to rob you and your family, come on, of the blessings of God and create dissension at home and contention and strife. If you remain silent, passive, 
non-assertive. On a personal level, let me remind you the benefits of salvation bring with us the revelation that we are heirs of God and joint heir of Christ Jesus Christ. Think about that with me. You and I are an heir of the covenant blessings of God. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. Come on. We walk. Abraham was blessed. Isaac was blessed. Jacob was blessed. And Leroy was blessed. Come on, somebody. That's how I live my life. Come on, I'm in that lineage right there. I'm an heir of the covenant blessing. Someone or something is always trying to steal that from me. And I've got to fight him off. I've got to shake him off and say, no, I know in whom I have believed. And I am fully persuaded that what God has promised, he will perform. Come on, somebody. Second, my family or my church family, something, a system of belief or someone such as evil men or seducers will try to hinder, resist, or attempt to rob or spoil my family, taking my children captive like in the days of old, in the days of David when he was uh, gone to fight against the, you know, the Philistines. The enemy come in and stole his wife and children. Let me tell you, the enemy comes and tries to divide our families. And if you remain silent, if you remain passive, you'll live the rest of your days in dissension and contention. There's a difference between contention and contending. God didn't call you to be contentious, but he did call you to contend for what he died on the cross to give to you. I'm preaching a lot better than y'all shouting today. Third, our community, our culture. The church has always been called to be salt and light. The virtue of true faith lived in the community should help preserve it. It should help preserve it. It should shine the light of truth that will, even if you and I, third time I'm stating it, I'll continue. If we don't fully convert the community, we will, by the light of truth, help restrain immorality. By influencing the laws or the values and the traditions of our community, our state, and our nation. But if you remain silent, someone will speak in your stead. So God has delivered to us this genuine faith. And he's left us on this planet to be a witness of the grace of God. And in doing so, you and I must earnestly... You're the running back today. You just made it through the line, but the linebacker's coming up. Here comes the cornerback, the defensive back, and the safety. You better hold two. They teach the running back a claw. You better put the claw on the nose of that ball. And you better tuck it in right here and say, I may go down, but I'm not letting go of this prized possession God's given me. Come on. This prized possession is a faith in God. It's our warfare. It's what we've been called. It's a contending. It's a struggle. It's a strife. Yeah, life is not easy. It's not easy being a part of the kingdom of God. In essence, we are swimming upstream. In essence, we are climbing a high mountain. In essence, we're going through trials and tribulations. But in essence, we have the hope of God working. Come on. He's our God. He'll make a way for us. Let me share with you your weaponry before I close today. Your warfare and your weaponry to close. Just for a moment. I, you, I can't leave you right here. I can't call the sermon. It won't take me but a couple minutes because you already know the context of which we're applying it at three different levels. 
And then 2 Corinthians 10 is where we're going to turn very quickly to close the sermon off today. We'll do so. I hopefully will do and give it justice. I don't want to wear you away. I don't want to waste you away. I don't want to preach too long. I've already been asked if I'm going to be preaching in overtime today. I don't know. I don't know whether it's the fourth quarter, third quarter, or we're just now getting to halftime. I'm not for sure. But let me just share with you in 2 Corinthians 10. It's a powerful passage of Scripture. I know you love it. I know I can preach slow and I can preach fast. I'll try to be moderate somewhere along the way. But in this, this second book of, uh, of, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, this passage here, the third verse, he says, though we don't walk in the flesh, we do, he said, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. What does that mean, pastor? That means we don't attempt to influence our culture on behalf of the cross through physical warfare. We're not practicing jihad, holy war. We're not using physical weapons. Let me tell you, we are attempting to influence our children and our children's children, and we're attempting to influence our culture and even our own church family. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God. Come on, somebody. They're mighty through God. They're more powerful than an AR-15. They're more powerful than a tank. They're more powerful than an F-16. They're more powerful than a nuclear submarine. They're more powerful than satellite imagery. Come on, we got the invisible power, omnipotent power of Almighty God on our behalf. And if God be for us... If God be for us, then who can be against us? That's why the psalmist, the warfare that he knew in his day was an armed horseman. Uh, armed, what that meant was the horse was in armor. The rider was in armor. And you were out there just as a footman. He said, but we don't put our trust in chariots. And we don't put our trust in horses. We don't put our trust in men at all. Our trust is in the name of the Lord. And we trust that if God's for us, he's going to make a way in our lives. Amen. And so our weapons are mighty. Let me tell you say real quickly, you know what they are? They're prayer and the Word of God. They're prayer and the Word of God. The Word of God preached is a weapon. The Word of God taught is a weapon. The Word of God spoken is a weapon. And the Word of God lived out in your life even with a muted tongue is a weapon. And you got to make application at all three levels. So by earnestly contending, let's read this in closing very quickly. Uh, when I earnestly contend, look what he said. Here's what I do. I cast down, no, let's back it up, fourth verse. The weapons of our warfare, here it is, you're familiar with it. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of what? Strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And they bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And when I am finished, it said, now my obedience will offset the effort of my disobedience. Look at that. I love that. That's like God's catch-all. God's catch-all says, I know you stumbled. I know you fumbled. I know you made some mistakes. I know you were an outcast. I know you were a heathen and you lived uh, an ungodly life. But when I saved you and redeemed you and changed you and put you on the right path and now you're walking in obedience, it's going to outshine all the... Time, that's good right there. It's going to outshine all the years of living for yourself. And so real quickly, what does it mean to pull down a stronghold? Put it on all three levels, personally or also to your family or also to your community. That means places, systems, or habits where the enemy or where unbelief or disobedience had lodged previously. Now you pull it down. Now you change your way of living. 
you change your life and your lifestyle, who you are, what you do, what you be involved in. Number two, arguments and imaginations. Those are reasons hostile to Christian faith. Those are suggestions and images. The enemy can suggest even through someone you love something contrary to the truth. Peter told Jesus, Jesus, you can't go to the cross. Far be it from thee, Lord Jesus, to go to the cross. Because he said, I'm about to go to the cross. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to be raised again. And Peter said, no, no, be it far from you, Lord Jesus. You know what Jesus said? He said, get thee behind me, Satan. And he saw there was a spirit behind it. Come on, somebody. He saw there was a spirit. I know I heard somebody's phone ding right there, and that's saying, you need to wrap up, preacher, but I'm not finished, so I got to go on. High things exalted or elevated to the level of the knowledge of God. That means every thought. Every reason, every suggestion, every tradition, every doctrine that has been by philosophy or supposed science or religion or government law elevated to be equal to the knowledge of God, then we're going to cast it down in Jesus' name. Going to cast it down by the word of faith. Every thought, he then says, every thought in your mind, I cast it down. Every thought that I contend with in my carnal mind, I pull it down in the name of Jesus. Let's make application to close very quickly today so I can show you briefly. Jojo prayed for you and said, God, let us be learners today. Let us learn the word of God. Let me show you through what I've studied in the word and what I have gleaned in my own personal life. Personally, here's what it means to contend in the context of what's just been read, that the weapons of your warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of the aforementioned things. Every pattern of life, personally, every thinking and reasoning that I previously lived and functioned in, I cast it down. So in my mind, I feel like I have no virtue, no merit, unrighteous, unholy, ungodly, tripped up, stumbled. Look what I did. Look who I was with. Look what I put in my body. I can now combat that, contend with it. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Now God's made all things new. Doesn't matter that I don't feel righteous. Doesn't matter that I don't feel holy. Doesn't matter. My feelings ain't got nothing to do with it. I was in Christ. Because I am in Christ, I was justified in Christ. I've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am a joint heir with Christ Jesus and made to sit down together. So when I get down on myself, get beaten up by the world in condemnation, I say there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not by the flesh but by the spirit. Come on somebody. He was the firstborn among many brethren. I'm a brother or a sister with Jesus. That's how I combat it every day. Every day when that thought comes into your mind, you got to pull it down. Cast it down. You got to know when the enemy is trying to steal from you the joy of living this Christian life, you got to say, The joy of the Lord is my strength. I believe just like I believe love is a choice, joy is a choice. If you want to be set in despair like they used to in hee-haw, you know, agony on me, come on, you can live your life that way. But I want you to know you need to have joy unspeakable and full of glory because God loves you today. Amen. ...can bring change to those around. Time will not afford us to go to Acts, the 19th chapter, but it's a moment in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, remember the Apostle Paul's tremendous conversion, how he had gone to Damascus from Jerusalem with letters in his hands to bring Christians back to Jerusalem where they would stand trial according to, the, to Judaism for believing in what they perceived as a false Messiah. En route with other men, he was confronted by the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He fell to the ground. 
And there he heard a voice speaking unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? For it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Y'all remember that? It's in the scriptures. And there he said, who art thou, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Lord, what would thou havest me to do? Go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou should do. And immediately, as he opened his eyes, he was blind. He was blind. He could not see. And they took him back there, and he waited for a man by the name of Ananias who came, who heard the voice of God in his prayer time. That's why we need prayer, to hear what God is doing in our lives so we can be readily to, you know, to advance the kingdom. Ananias Go to a man by the name of Saul. He's in a house called, or he's in a, on the street. He, God gave him the address on the street called Sent. He's right there. And he said, he's praying. He's seen in a vision. You're going to come lay hands on him. And I said, excuse me, Lord. Have you heard about that man? Y'all remember that? Have you heard about him? He has bound people, put them in prison. He said, I'm not going to him. He can't be saved. And he said, you go do what I told you. And Ananias went and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus that appeared unto thee has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And God laid, Ananias laid hands on him. He received the Holy Spirit. He was mightily transformed by the power of God. And he was called into apostolic ministry, as you know. And he went for two and a half years into the Sinai Peninsula and there he received the revelation of the word of God. It's there that he understood the grace of God. Unlike any apostle, even the 11 that walked with Jesus personally did not understand grace the way that Paul did. God, by revelation, opened unto him the glorious virtue of the grace of God that included not just Jews, but also Gentiles, right? Weaving us all together in one corporate family of God. Tearing down, he would write in the book of Ephesians that we're going to reference in a moment of time. The, 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 the original recipients of the, of the letter in the book of Ephesians, he said, God has tore down the middle wall of partition, taken it out of the way and allowed us to become one body in Christ with access unto the Father. So that Paul went to Ephesus. And there, the 19th chapter says he found. Now, remember, he's alive. He's got purpose. He's got vision. He's, he knows that God's called him to do these things. It's not easy. He faces challenge everywhere he goes. You can, face, you can be in the center of God's will and be facing challenge. You can be in the I know I'm in overtime now, but the church needs it. You need why well, this is spontaneous as the Holy Spirit's giving it to me. So I'm going to give it to you. You can be in the center of God's will for your life and be in, with persecution all around you. Because the enemy, through the structure of system around you, is trying to take from you the prize. The prize is that genuine faith that's going to change you, your family, and your family's family. Come on now, right there. That genuine faith. That's what the enemy's after. Well, Paul goes to Ephesus. He finds 12 disciples who had heard about Jesus, didn't know everything about Jesus. He asked them, had they received the Spirit? So we haven't even known, been taught about the Spirit. He said, what then you believe? Well, y'all know this story. Many of you do. He said, well, we, we were baptized according to John's baptism, the baptism of repentance. He said, well, John preached about that, but now Jesus came, fulfilled it, so let's go water baptized. Took them down, baptized them in water, and then he laid hands on them. When he laid hands on them, the Spirit of God came upon them. I'm going to tell you, God can use you. God can use you to bring difference and change to people's life. Twelve men caught in a philosophy of belief that was not fulfilling the work of the cross in their life, but they came, Paul came with revelation, brought them to greater understanding, and became the conduit to the blessing of God. So can you. And that became his family. For the next two and a half years, he dwelt at Ephesus, hanging out with that group of people. So he tried to go to the synagogue. He spent three months at the synagogue, but you know the Jews were blinded. 
Many of the Jews could not believe. So after three months, he finally said, there's no good in this contentious interaction here. So he took the disciples out and spent the next two years really discipling them in the Word of God. You know, they, you, can you imagine what they'll say? Paul, the missionary evangelist that would go anywhere for the sake of the gospel, spent two and a half years, the longest time he ever stayed in one place. So that meant every Sabbath there was worship service led by an apostle, not a squeaky-voiced pastor like you got, an apostle who was preaching under the unction and the anointing of God. And the Bible says that while there, God did special miracles. I'm telling you, we need a new season in the church. We need a new season of special miracles where God just does crazy things. You know, he was, he was working and he had handkerchiefs on his body. And they took the handkerchief off of his body and there were people that were either diseased or devil-possessed and they, nobody laid hands on them, poured oil on them, or brought them to the altar for prayer. They just took the handkerchief off of Paul's body and the devils left them. Come on, somebody. People began to hear about the miracles. And, and that's that passage of Scripture where somebody else tried to cast the devil out of someone. Seven priests, sons of the priesthood, tried to cast out devils. And the devil spoke through the demon-possessed man and said, Jesus, I know. And I, you know what? And I've gotten to notice Paul. But I don't know anything about you. And the man jumped on the seven men, stripped the clothes off, and they ran them out. They ran, that one devil run them out naked. So all this started happening. When it happened, people started saying, you know what? This Jesus that Paul's preaching is the real deal. And people start getting saved. Hallelujah. I'm looking for the day of the restored work of genuine, authentic salvation. Where when you get saved, you get changed. Not where you just continue in lewdness and cover it up under a title of grace. My God, that wasn't in the notes. I just felt it right there to say it. That's where we're at today. Just, you know, well, it's all under grace and you, there's no change in your life other than now you go to church three times a year. And so these people are starting to get saved. How are they saved? How do you know they're saved? Because they're bringing the drugs and putting them on the altar. They're bringing the pornography and putting it on the altar. Come on, somebody. They're bringing all the filth, the black magic, and they're, and they're getting $50,000 worth. That's when you know true change. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And they had put a lot of treasure in those resources, and they gave them up because they said, Hallelujah, we've got a treasure greater. We got, God's done something altogether lovely in our heart. And Acts 19 says this, So grew the Word of God and prevailed and prevailed. You know what it can do in your family? If you'll hold it. And you'll say, devil, you can't have it. Come on, if you learn to get up in the middle of the night and walk through your house. Come on and say, devil, you can't have my kids. I don't care what they're doing right now. Does it matter, God? Your word says the children of the servants of the Lord, they shall continue and they will be established, God. So, God, I speak life and favor and blessing over my house and my family. Come on, somebody. When the devil tries to take your health and flesh, then you can say, God, by your stripes, I'm healed. Devil, you can't have it in the name of Jesus. 
Jesus bore on his back 39 stripes for my healing, and by his stripes I am healed. Come on, somebody. You don't have to go to bed at night with your mind in contention and strife and worried and frantic. Come on, somebody. But you can pillow your head in faith and say, God, your word says, fret not. God, I'm going to lay myself down, and I'm going to sleep a restful sleep because of your virtue and grace in my life. I'm not going to give it to you. You've got to learn to move it and advance it, church family. You have, like Esther, you have come to the kingdom for this time right here. You've got to learn to contend for the things that God has committed to your trust. Why don't y'all stand up with me today in the name of Jesus. It's 1213. I want to ask you to do something with me right now. It's an act of faith. I know you don't want to. Your flesh doesn't want to. I want to pray a corporate prayer. I preached longer than I attended. I was going to bring you. We're going to spend time in prayer, but we're going to, I want to do something, though. Please respond. I want to ask you, for the purpose of setting a precedence, move forward to the altar. Just move forward to the altar right now.